0: invite you to open your Bible tonight with me to psalm 66 psalm 66 psalm 66 is very closely related to psalm 65 there are familiar themes uh, psalm 65 rejoices in God's awesome deeds uh, as seen particularly in a creation psalm 66 um, does the same but focusing on God's uh, awesome deeds in uh, redemption uh, this morning we saw what, what uh, improper, poor worship looked like. Tonight we're going to see what true worship looks like as the psalmist uh, delights in God's uh, saving acts, both on a cosmic scale and on a personal level. Um, you'll notice as we go through the psalm that it begins by calling all the earth to to worship and praise the Lord. Uh, in verse 8 and, uh, and following, he'll say, you know, uh, call the earth to bless God, because of God's saving works in Israel. And then in verses the 13 and following, he, he, he uh, begins a personal testimony. So um, it, you have this, this widening and then narrowing down to a personal testimony. Let's just give our attention then to God's word. Psalm 66, beginning at verse 1. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. And then verse 4 is better translated in the future tense. All the earth will worship you and sing praises to your name. They will sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him, who rules by His might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bull, bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Well, thank you, Lord, that you've given us this spirit-inspired psalm, and we thank you, Lord, for the way that it calls us to come and see and to come and hear and to bless God. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move those uh, within our hearts, that we would, Lord, respond in joy for your salvation, both, Lord, on a cosmic level as you're making all things new, and we rejoice, Lord, for what you have done for us and are doing in our life. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would leave here delighting in your salvation, delighting in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that is universally true of um, every person is that we tend to care most about the things that personally impact us, the things that personally affect us. Uh, If uh, you have experienced some kind of a trauma um, you care about people in trauma and and uh, specifically if you've suffered some specific disease you're suddenly aware of people who are suffering from a similar disease your your eyes just su- are suddenly open they've always been there but when it's happened to you suddenly you care in a deeper way if you are a married person uh, you care about topics concerning marriages and books and seminars about marriages uh, in the same way uh, The the gospel is, the key to delighting in the gospel is to actually experience the gospel. If you are a great sinner, and you know you're a great sinner, and you're absolutely convinced that if God were simply to treat you in justice, you would truly experience His wrath forever, but you've experienced through the gospel the, the love of God to you. That God has not dealt with you as your sins deserve. That God has instead responded to you with incredible love, incredible kindness, mercy, and grace. Well, if you've experienced that for yourself, you're going to delight in the gospel generally, and you're going to delight in what God is doing in the lives of other people and all over the world and in His cosmic redemption. And the psalmist has that uh, that experience. So the psalm ends with his personal reflection But you see, because he's personally experienced the steadfast love of the Lord, he delights in what God is doing uh, in in a cosmic sense and calls all the world to come and rejoice. The psalm has two primary parts. Uh, The first will be a call to communal praise. That's verses 1 through 12. And then secondly, a personal testimony, 13 through 20. And we'll uh, look at the psalm in uh, that order. First, then a call for communal praise. The first section, if you have your Bible open, you notice it has three paragraphs, three strophes, one through four, uh, five through um, seven, and then eight through 12. And they each begin with an imperative, a command. So shout for joy, come and see, verse five, and bless our God, O peoples, in verse eight. Let's just take the first strophe then. A shout for joy the um, when i read a psalm like this one of the questions i like to ask is what does the author see that makes him write what he does what's he looking at if you uh, if you ever read poetry uh, or maybe maybe a painting or some work of art it's helpful to ask well what is the author what is he seeing as he writes these words what what's the context What's he looking at that that has motivated him to write as he does? Well, what's captured the the, the eye of uh, the poet here, the the author here, is clearly the glory and power of God revealed in his salvation. And, And he is moved then to invite all the world to celebrate these things. Shout for joy to God all the earth. There's this There's this wonderful expansive conviction that God deserves to be praised everywhere. We have a tendency to think that God is a bit of a tribal God, that God is for Christian people. God is for people who believe in Him. And and, and they do their thing and they worship God and, and, and that's as it should be. Well, friends, God is not a tribal God. He actually is the God of all the earth. And He deserves to be worshipped and praised by all the world. We are comfortable with unbelievers not praising God. After all, they don't believe in God. But we should not be comfortable with unbelievers not worshipping God because there is a God and He deserves their praise. He's worthy of worship and praise. And so the psalmist, you see, is driven to the sense that there's there's an urgency here. There's a moral necessity here. God should be moved, God should be worshipped, by all his creatures. The great injustice of the world is that God is not worshipped as he ought to be worshipped. This is the vision that that runs throughout Scripture. It's the vision that um, drove the church from its very beginning to world missions. When Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples preaching the gospel, uh, Jesus is sending his people to wake people up to the reality of God so that God might be worshipped. And the New Testament church has always taken this urgency as their motivation to go in into every part of the world. I was reminded just recently um, by someone who's very engaged in missions of, of how many parts of the world have not yet heard. There are thousands of people groups who've never heard uh, the truth of God. There are, there are many languages that don't have a Bible in their, in their language. There's much work yet to be done. But the The driving force of a Christian, as we acknowledge the greatness of our God, will be that all the world would know and all the world would see. Uh, In verse 4, he looks forward to a day when that will happen. All the peoples, all the earth will worship you. Uh, They will sing praises to you. I I hope that fills you with a sense of deep joy. And, and, and that, of course, is what all of Scripture is moving towards, isn't it? Ever since God met Adam and Eve in the garden and clothed them when He could have killed them and, and promised them a Savior, but way back in Genesis 3.15, the Bible has been moving towards this final day when... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When there will be around the throne of God in heaven men and women and boys and girls from every tongue and tribe and nation, every, every color, ethnic, every ethnicity, every, uh, every background imaginable and with one voice be celebrating the greatness of God as revealed in His salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what all of Scripture is moving toward. And Psalm 66 looks forward and sees that day in faith. Verse 3 gives us the theme of the song. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. How awesome are your deeds. So great is your power, your enemies come cringing before you. Now, um, the boys and girls, the word awesome here doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, we use the word awesome, uh, and then we say totally awesome, if, if we're really gripped by it, to mean something that's really neat, really cool, really impressive. Well, that's that's a little bit what the word means, but but the word as it's used in Scripture um, has a sense of dread to it. The the root of this word is the word for fear, so awesome could also be translated as terrifying, uh, overwhelming. It, it, it's something that makes you both amazed and makes you afraid. Because of the power and the glory boys and girls if you ever uh, have heard a incredible clap of thunder like lightning strikes right next to the house and it just explodes it's very impressive and it it's frightening that's what the word means that um, something God has done something that, Grabs your attention in that way that, that amazes you with its power and its glory and makes you afraid because of the, the greatness and glory of God being revealed. Well, what is he thinking of that has that sort of uh, impact? Well, come and see. Verse 5 Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the river on foot. And there we did rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Boys and girls, when did God turn the sea into dry land? Well, it's when Israel came out of Egypt, right? In the Exodus. And uh, that would get your attention. You're standing by the, the, the side of the sea, and suddenly the waters part by the, by the command of God as Moses stretches out his staff, and the people of Israel walk through on dry land. That's impressive. That's overwhelming. That's overwhelming. What God can do that? And then again, when they go through the, the River Jordan into the land of promise, once again, God does the very same thing. And the writer uh, thinks of these things as thunderclaps revealing the greatness of God. And the people rejoice in the greatness of God. Miriam, remember, led the congregation in Exodus 15. Uh, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he has throw, he thrown into the sea—that's uh, what the writer is calling uh, the world. Come and see. Come and see what God has done. It highlights a wonderful truth about biblical religion, and that is that the that the evidences of God are, are rooted in His saving acts in history. If you were an Israelite living in in, in the the, the uh, Old Testament times, uh, you didn't have to sort of. Uh, try to argue with someone about whether there is a God or not, you could you simply say, Red Sea, Jordan River, and a whole lot of other things. There are historical evidences, things that happened that cannot be explained in any other way than the hand of God. Well, Christians have the same objective grounds for faith today. We can say to anyone, well, come and see. You don't think there's a God? You don't think the Bible is true? Well, just come and see. Look at the evidences. Jesus did not carry out his ministry in in secret, in a, in, a, in a quiet little corner. Um, we don't. We are not left as Christians to philosophical opinings like like you have with Buddhism, where some guy sat and thought these these thoughts. We don't have. Um, a holy book that some guys just sat down and decided to, to write like Muhammad and, and the Quran. What well, we have are objective historical events. Things that eyewitnesses claimed happened. And there are many eyewitnesses. One of the, um, one of the authors I'd recommend to you is Peter Williams. Uh, can the, uh, the Gospels be Trusted? That, that title might not be quite right, but it's very close. And he just goes through all the evidences to show that the gospels are absolutely historically accurate and reliable, we have historic evidences as the grounds of our faith. We can say to anyone, "Come and see what God has done. Do the investigation. It'd be a wonderful thing, actually. If you'd like to, if you have someone that you'd like to evangelize, um, just simply read through the gospels with them, and then maybe." maybe just point out, these are historical events. This is not, it's not philosophy. It's not just kind of religious ideas, but historical events concerning Jesus. Well, God has acted, and the psalmist calls all the world to bless God because of what he's done. Bless our God, O peoples, Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Notice, he's calling all the nations to bless God for God's work of saving Israel. You see all the the our language here? Bless our God, who's kept our soul and has not let our foot slip. He's he's kept us. That the the world should see God's saving acts towards his, his people and marvel. This idea of God keeping is a—it's important biblical concept, isn't it? Psalm one twenty one: The Lord is your keeper; the Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Those are beautiful truths, wonderful words. But Psalm sixty six shows us that we have to understand the true nature of God's keeping, because God does not keep us from heartache and hurt in verses 10 through 12 if you have your bible there notice uh they've experienced being tested and tried like silver they've been brought into the net they've had crushing burdens placed on their backs Uh, men have ridden over their heads in 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 victory Um, they went through fire they went through water these are these are times of of great heartbreak heartache times of deep pain These are all the the sorts of things that we hope we don't have to experience in life. The the grave illness. The the sudden death of a loved one, maybe a child or a spouse. The the, the devastation of our family because of sin. Things that we hope that that God will will protect us from. These these are the sorts of things he's writing about. I'm reading a book currently... um, Prayers in the Night, where the author says uh, that she was at a funeral of a little boy in their church who um, drowned, a little three-year-old boy. And she said the minister said something in his sermon that shook her to the core. Uh, She couldn't believe what she was hearing and didn't want to receive it. Because what the minister said was this, quote, We cannot trust God to protect us from devastating things. And she realized that he had just laid bare her most dearly held assumption that if I believe in God, if I try to serve God, I can hope and and maybe even trust that God will protect my life from devastating things. And the minister said, it's just not true. You can't trust God to protect you from devastating things. Why not? Well, because God has not promised to protect us from devastating things. He's promised to protect us from evil, but not from hurt. In fact, if you note in the psalm, these hard things come from the hands of God. Notice all the you language. Verse 10, you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our back. You let men ride over our heads. So we went through fire and water. You see, these aren't simply bad, hard, and bad things that have happened to Israel. These are things, devastating things that God did to them, that God allowed happen to them. Where people today try to excuse God from the bad things and say, well, God, God is no part of the hard things, that's just the devil at work. The psalmist makes, does not play those games. You, God, did these things. He's not excusing God, but he's blessing God. Right. This is part. Of, this this is in the strophe that begins, "Bless our God, O peoples." Well, when I read something like that, I just what? In the, what's he looking at? What does he see that allows him to bless God in the full con- in the full knowledge that God has done hard, hurtful, devastating things? It just reminds me of, of the little children. Maybe if you've been to the zoo with your little kids, and um, and you're and you're looking over this, you know this this wall, and you're admiring and oohing and eyeing, you know, the the gorilla as he's doing whatever he's doing. And you got a little four year old, right, standing here on his tiptoes. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Well, I feel like a little four year old here. What is the what does the writer see that allows him? To talk about all these devastating things and then bless God. Well, there's two things. The first thing he sees is that God is at work. That, That that the devastating things are not random, they're not and they're not punishment. They're not they're not God against him. It is God at work testing and trying them as silver is tried by fire. Why do you try silver by fire? What's what's the goal of that? Why make the poor silver go through it? And obviously the answer is to purify it. Remember this morning we talked about God is a holy God. And God's commitment is to make us a holy people. How does that happen? He purifies us. And He purifies us all the way to the end. God is at work doing something, saving in them as he's testing and trying them, as he's bringing them into the net and putting crushing burdens on their back. What he sees is, is God at work sovereignly with, with wisdom only God that only God has, um, but, but with perfect skill, God at work doing something for Israel, not just to them. Derek Kidner says, The biblical habit of seeing the hand of God in all events makes the suffering as meaningful as the deliverance. It makes the suffering as meaningful as the deliverance. This is a theme throughout Scripture, of course. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, the writer writes to people who are very discouraged. I mean, life is incredibly hard. They came to Christ and they lost everything. Their life fell apart. And he says, Do not be discouraged. The Lord is treating you as sons. Sons. You have a heavenly father. Didn't your father discipline you? Happy Father's Day. Didn't your father discipline you for your good? If he was a loving father, he did. Don't you thank him for it now? The writer says that's exactly what God is doing. But secondly, he, he, he sees God at work for their good, but secondly, he sees the result of it. Verse 12b, yet you've brought us out to a place of abundance, somehow the trial produced abundance. This is the theme. We saw it in chapter 65. The abundance of God. Somehow, the, the, God brings us through trials and heartaches because it is through them that we experience blessings and riches and treasures we simply could not have known before. Do you have, have you ever had the sense that, that the good things in life are all good gifts, but they don't necessarily deepen you. They don't don't make you a deeper, richer, better person. And somehow the trials do. When when the hard, hurtful thing happens to you, suddenly you have compassion for, for fellow travelers who are suffering hard and hurtful things in a way that despite your best intentions, you did not have when life was simply easy. Somehow you you realize in the hard and hurtful things the beauty of Jesus, just having Jesus, and that just having Jesus is enough, even though life is so hard and it hurts so bad, but having Jesus is enough. You never learn that, you see, in the times of blessing. You have to go through the trial. And the trial then brings you to the abundance you have examples of this all through Scripture. Joseph suffered mightily in a way that any person looking at him would say, "What does God have against this man?" And yet, what is God's purpose in the end—to make him second in command over all of Egypt? King David the same way. King David is anointed. He was living a wonderful little life as a shepherd of the sheep, singing, writing psalms, singing, playing his harp, and things like that. And suddenly he's anointed, and it all falls apart. And the king wants to kill him. Well, why would God do that to his, to his precious servant David? Because God's preparing him to be king. He's preparing for abundance. You see this, of course, most, most critically in, in the life of our Lord Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is the one whom God says, this is my Son whom I dearly love. And yet God allows the greatest evils to be committed against him. Why? Because it's through the cross that glory is gained. And Christ has gained that not only for himself, but for us. And so the writer says, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. And then he moves to a personal testimony. Verses 13-15 through tells us what he will do. What he's going to do, he's going to worship. He's going to worship the way God has prescribed in the Old Testament. He's going to bring his sacrifices. He's He's going to pay his vows. The vows that he uttered when he was in trouble. He's going to worship the Lord. But he he doesn't want to do it all by himself. He he wants others to join him. And so he gathers the congregation. Come and hear. Verse 16. All you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He's a holy God. But truly God has listened. He has attended the voice of my prayer. I love uh, this testimony, this example of a testimony. That, uh, God has done something good for this man and he wants to share it. He wants to tell the story. In his moment of trial, in the, in the, in the time where God was testing him and crushing, laying a crushing burden on his back, he cried out to God. That's exactly what a child of God should do. But he cried out to God, noticed with high praise on his tongue. He cried out to God, somehow able to believe that God is still glorious and, and, and that God was still good. He cried out to God without cherishing iniquity in his heart. So, so isn't it true? We've said this so many times. Isn't it true that, that, that God uses trials to make us think about our sin, to make us think about our idols, and to repent? And the man says, I, I, was not, I did not cherish iniquity. I, I saw my sin. I, I, re, I was turning from sin. I, I wanted God. That's the sacrifice, of course, that's pleasing to the Lord. And God listened. Verse 20, blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. What if that were not true? What if if God did not hear prayer? What if God just left you alone in your heartache and in your sin, and he removed his steadfast love from you? It's the most horrific thought in the whole world. But God, as we, as we saw in Psalm 65, God is the God who hears prayer. And God has heard this man's prayer. And isn't that your story? Isn't this our, our testimony? When you found yourself in great trouble spiritually, when you realized that your sin was, was a pit that you could not escape from, it, was, it held you in chains that you could not break, when your guilt and your sin was overwhelming you, and you cried out to God. Isn't that what happened to you if you're a Christian? And you, you asked the Lord to rescue you, to, to forgive you. And you, ha- you, you dared to ask because he promised that he would. That he, if, if you confess your sins, he says that he'll be faithful and just. It, the Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And you are able by the grace of God to lay hold of that gospel promise. And you confessed your sin and you called on the name of the Lord and you were able to believe and understand that God had forgiven you. He did not remove his steadfast love from you. Just recently, the session was privileged to hear from a a testimony of a former member who had fallen into sin. And she testified so beautifully of how um, for several years she was just buried in guilt and shame because of what she'd done, she couldn't even talk to the Lord. But then she began to cry out for mercy, <clears throat> and she confessed her sins. she asked forgiveness for those whom she'd wronged. And with tears in her eyes, she was able to say, the Lord heard my prayer, and in spite of my great sin, he did not remove his steadfast love from her. Friend, has God done this for you? Has, has he heard your prayer? Has he continued his steadfast love to you? See, one of the, the questions we would ask is, well, why, why would he, in, in spite of all that I've done, why would, why would God continue to show steadfast love to me? What confidence could we have that he'll do this? And, and, of course, the answer is our Lord Jesus. It's a psalm that points us to Christ, as all Scripture does. Jesus is the ultimate expression of the awesome deeds of God. The saving work of God. When God himself became flesh and God himself walked this earth and God himself took on our sin and went to the cross and destroyed death for us. Jesus is all the evidence you'll ever need of God's love and mercy for those who confess their sin. And Jesus walked this pilgrim road of suffering. Jesus can pray Psalm 66, Lord, you laid these burdens on our back. You tested and tried us as silver is tried by fire. But Jesus is ultimately the personal expression of God's steadfast love to us. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8. He says, God shows present tense. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows us his steadfast love. That's our confidence. And this is our story. Of all the backgrounds we might come from and all the different uh, uh, realities and things that we face as, as people, jobs we hold, all the differences. You see, there's one common truth. We are sinners who by the grace of God and the grace of God alone have been rescued through Jesus Christ. God heard our prayer. God has not turned to steadfast love. That's our story. And this now becomes our calling. Psalm 66 is our calling to invite all the world to come and bless God. Come and see. Come and hear. Bless our God. I pray this week God will give you opportunities to do just that. To invite people to come and see. To tell your story. To invite people to come and hear what God has done for your soul. Your soul. Not just the grand cosmic, that's a a necessary part of the story. But but tell the story of what God has done for my soul. This is what God did for me. Bless our God. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you've not turned away from us. And I thank you, Lord, that you've engaged us with sovereign love and saving intent, because, Father, you have purposed to make us your children, to make us citizens of an eternal kingdom. And in this life, you are at work preparing us for our eternal home. We are so blessed, so privileged, but Lord, we so easily doubt, particularly in the hard times. I, again, Lord, I pray that you would be with your hurting people tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a vision of your sovereign goodness, your fatherly kindness, that we would be able to bless you even in the trial, even in the hurt, and that we would have experience, Lord, of your abundance, of spiritual. Joy that is so deep and peace that passes understanding and patience that is purely a gift from the Holy Spirit that our lives would exude kindness and gentleness and self-control because, Lord, we see the beauty and the goodness of our God. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who live in this world, inviting others to come and see and come and hear and come and worship this great God who does awesome deeds and all for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's respond now by singing again Psalm 66.